Welcome, everyone, to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one, a very special author interview with Sally Mott Freeman, whose new book, The Jersey Brothers, is climbing toward the top spot on the New York Times bestseller list. And it has a real good chance of becoming a movie. And for good reason. It's an incredible, true World War II story that involved three members of her family, her father and his two brothers, her uncles, all in the U.S. Navy and deeply involved in World War II. One, her dad, Navy Intel, FDR's right-hand man in charge of the war room at the White House. Two, the youngest of the three, Uncle Barton, wounded, captured by the Japanese in the Philippines, his fate unknown. And three, Uncle Benny, a gunnery and anti-aircraft officer on the USS Enterprise, right in the thick of it in the Pacific War. Like the sackets of Louis L'Amour fame, this family, when threatened, stops at nothing to find one of their own in trouble. And you, the reader, are part of a search for the wounded and missing younger brother, a search played out against the brutal backdrop of the war in the Pacific. It's a family saga you won't be able to put down. Sally Mott Freeman has spent a decade researching every detail of this book, and the story she's put together is gripping from the very start. Welcome, Sally. It's great to have this opportunity to talk to you about your terrific book. Thank you. I mean, it's a story that we heard many times uh, growing up uh, about this mysterious Uncle Barton who did not return from World War II, and no matter how much we mocked children theorized over time, the various explanations of what happened to him really never squared. And when I was organizing my parents' papers, um, I found in the attic a stack of my father's uh, naval intelligence files and also his White House map room files, because right after the outbreak of World War II, he was uh, transferred from naval intelligence to set up uh, the White House map room, the secret, secret map room for President Roosevelt. And I found those files and read through them at an historic archive like no other. And I found the beginning of my father's own search in 1942 for his missing brother. And it was uh, the most information that I had, you know, hard information I had read on the subject ever. And also I found the only picture I uh, have ever seen of the three brothers together. And I was often running after that. I had names. I had, uh, I could go to the Navy database. I could go to the National Personnel Records Center and start getting documents on the people mentioned in these various queries. And, and it was a race against time because this was the early 2000s. And if I was going to find important wartime colleagues of all three of these brothers, I, I really needed to get going. And fortunately, I did find quite a number of their colleagues. Uh, my father, of course, in intelligence in the White House map room, and the oldest of the three brothers, all of whom went to the Naval Academy, uh, who was the gunnery officer on the USS Enterprise, and then the youngest of the three, Barton, who uh, was sent to the Philippines shortly before it was attacked, and then he was wounded and listed as missing. Who the was world, the youngest, and who was the middle brother? What was his first name? My father, Bill Mott, was the middle brother. Mm -hmm. He was the naval intelligence officer, and the eldest of the three, uh, Benny was his nickname, uh, Was uh, went into gunnery after graduating the academy in 1930, and he served aboard the Lexington first, and then became the gunnery officer on the Enterprise, just as the Pacific Fleet was being moved from the west coast of California out to uh, Honolulu, out to Pearl Harbor, 
um, as an intended deterrent uh, to Japan's expansionist zeal. He was on the Enterprise as it was returning from Wake Island to secret delivery of bombers right before December 7th, and their arrival, which was supposed to be on December 6th, was delayed a day due to weather, and that is how they escaped annihilation and the secret attack on Pearl Harbor. In fact, their airplanes from the Enterprise tangled with the Zeros that were leaving the Kido Butai just as it was starting its attack. The airplanes usually leave the carrier early to arrange for its berthing and so forth. So we had these three venues, my one uncle, Barton, in the Philippines as it was being attacked, Benny on the Enterprise, uh, to this day still the most decorated carrier in American naval history, and my father setting up the White House map room for Franklin Roosevelt, out of which the war was essentially run, kind of at the epicenter of Allied decision-making. And I was reading through these documents, and I thought, my God. You know, this is a remarkable story that these three men were, you know, in these important hotspots in World War II simultaneously. It it reads like a movie, almost like it would almost be fiction. The fact that it's true just amazes you because uh, the three were all connected in operations that involved the Pacific Theater. Now, now Barton was in the Philippines, uh, was supplied. He was Navy. Yes, he was a Supply Corps officer. He was Navy, and he was sent there in late November 1941 uh, as part of a belated effort to frantically build up uh, the defenses there, um, which were considered weak and vulnerable. And And new recruits were arriving every day by ship. They conscripted ocean liners to get them there. And then, of course, within days, it was attacked by the Japanese after Nine hours after Pearl Harbor is when the Japanese first went after the uh, Philippines, the, the air defenses. Then they went after the, 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 the naval yard, which is where Barton was stationed when he was struck down. Now, the Philippines, uh, geographically fairly close to Japan. Well, the Asiatic fleet had been moved um, from a different uh port in the Pacific. I I'm, I'm have to remember where, maybe Singapore, I'm not sure, but it had been moved to the Philippines, largely because of, uh, also as a deterrent, the same way the Pacific fleet was moved from San Diego to Honolulu, but um, and it had a few vintage destroyers as part of the Asiatic fleet. This was the Asiatic fleet. Uh, I guess now they would call it the third fleet. Oh, no, they would call it the seventh fleet, sorry. But it was especially useful in the Philippines because of its large staple of submarines, because the Philippines, of course, is 7,700 islands or so, and, you know, it had, it was a water defense and um, sort of environment. And uh, that is the reason, the other reason that the Asiatic fleet was thought to be, you know, so important there. Tell us a little bit about Barton so we get to know him as a person. We'll start with the youngest brother, Barton, and if you'll kind of fill us in on on his life and, and what got him into the Navy and kind of personalize his story a little bit, then we'll move on to the other brothers. Is that okay? Yes, I think that sounds great. Uh, Well, Barton was the youngest of the three boys and the apple of their mother's eye, a fierce family matriarch, uh, the mother was, and she wanted her youngest son to follow the older brothers to the Naval Academy, but he he wasn't quite cut from the same cloth, but she pushed it and pushed it and pushed it, and eventually uh, he didn't uh, make it on his first bid. He went to the Citadel for a year to sort of prime him for candidacy. And he was only 16 when he graduated from high school. So there was, 
He certainly wasn't too old to be doing that, that sort of interim year at the Citadel. And after the Citadel, he matriculated to the Naval Academy. He disliked the Naval Academy just as much as he disliked the Citadel. Um, and after two years there, he bilged, as they say, at the Naval Academy. He failed a must-pass pass math examination by seven one-hundredths of one point. He had just and gone through that a, was ground. He had just gone through a brutal hazing the night before. Exactly right. He was he was badly hazed. He was not a lar- He was a relatively small. He was prematurely born, and he was hazed by upperclassmen the the night before that exam. And of course, um, their mother factors into all of this because she she wrote had this formidable canon of letters that she wrote everyone from uh, the commandant of the Naval Academy to his commanding officers to President Roosevelt to Admiral Nimitz and all of their replies, as well as a uh, a, a series of diaries, wartime diaries that she kept. So you had this sort of fierce outer person you you met through these letters that she wrote, which were highly articulate. She was a Wellesley graduate. She sort of thought they needed her advice on on, on sort of war strategy and so forth. And in her diary, she was lamenting the fact that she had three sons you know, in the military, one of whom was missing, and you really got to see the mother side of this person. And with respect to Barton, um, you know, the reason he ended up in the Philippines, so he failed out of the Naval Academy, but continued his college education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and graduated with a degree in business. But by this time, the mandatory draft had been signed into law. So my father, by then a naval intelligence officer in Washington, used his influence to arrange for Barton to facilitate a logical and presumably safe commission in the Navy Supply Corps, which is sort of the Navy's business office. And, of course, he did this to help his younger brother, but it was also to placate their mother. But, of course, as I'm sure you understand, the Navy sometimes has other plans. And right after his commissioning in November 1941, he received abrupt orders to the Philippines and shortly after arriving there was wounded in the surprise Japanese air raid that destroyed Cavite, which is the name of the American naval, was the name of the American naval base there uh, near Manila. And that's where his troubles uh, began, right, just about. That's where his troubles began. And then, and then Admiral Hart, who was the, um, the most senior most naval officer in the Philippines, ordered the Asiatic fleet out because they had no air defense by that time, and these submarines were exposed in some of the clearest waters on the globe. So they were ordered to Australia, including Barton's ship, which was a supply tender, which basically cared for all these submarines, which require a great deal of care and maintenance and so forth. And so he was in the base hospital when his ship and the fleet fled, if you will. And then they were moved over to Sternberg Hospital in Manila. They were moved across the bay, and MacArthur issued an order after all the forces retreated to either Corregidor or Bataan, and MacArthur issued an order on December 31, 1941, to, to the Army, to the Sternberg Hospital, that all Army wounded uh, should need to be rushed down to the docks and, and boarded on a Red Cross ship to get to Australia before Manila fell to the Japanese. And MacArthur was ordered to get his... his uh, airplanes up in the air and to prevent them from, because it, it was virtual certainty that the Philippines was next. And they kept sending warnings from Washington to MacArthur to get his planes in the air. And he never replied. He never responded. and He never got those planes in the air. 
And December 8 is when the airplanes were destroyed on the ground, wingtip to wingtip, some nine hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, you know, accounting for the international date line and the day difference. Even though it was December 8, it was only nine hours after the attack on uh, Pearl Harbor. And then after the air cover was destroyed, they went after the Navy facilities. And uh, that was December 9, 10, 11, 12. It went on for several days. So Barton was wounded on December 10th in one of the subsequent attacks. And then he ended up in, in Manila in a hospital. Yes. Instead, he retreated to Bataan and Corregidor. Right. The surrender did not take place on Bataan until, I want to say, April 9th. Right. And then Corregidor held out for another month, and then it fell. The fight, yes, the fight yes, that those course. men put up, absolutely incredible. Absolutely. And then for the order to come down, we surrendered 70,000 troops. And that was a combination of American and Filipino troops. But what I was saying earlier is that is that he was wounded, you know, right after war broke out, if you will. But he was in this hospital. They were all of these wounded Navy patients were in this hospital in Manila. And they were the first prisoners of the Japanese in the Philippines because Bataan and Corregidor held out several more months. But these men were captured on New Year's Eve, December 31, 1941. And that was actually part of the, the, one of the quandaries early in my research was that I kept, I located Barton at Cabanatuan and other prison camps. But where was he in that intervening period? And it was only through a lot of digging and finding uh, retired Navy nurses that were in the hospital and, and documents that were kept by the doctors who were captured with those Navy patients, by the way. And they kept day-to-day records of their patients and where the Japanese were sort of holding them up. And that's how I found out that for five, four months before Bataan fell, these Navy patients, who, by the way, it was the only remaining military contingent in all of Manila. And the Japanese suspected that they were spies. And the only thing their bandages covered was their identity as spies. And they were inter- interrogated for weeks by the Kempatai who just simply couldn't understand why this sole unit was left behind. Let's move to uh, Benny. Benny's on the Enterprise. Yes. And tell us a little bit about his personal background, how he ended up uh, in the Navy and on the Enterprise. Yes. So Benny uh, graduated in 1930 from the Naval Academy. Of course, this was in the teeth of the recession. He managed to get um, a commission on uh, a ship out uh, at, in San Diego. Uh, he was on the Lexington first. It was an aircraft carrier, and he worked in gunnery. That was always his dream and goal. And he ultimately rose to be the anti-aircraft and gunnery officer on the Enterprise. And it was one of the few ships and even fewer carriers not deleted from the Pacific Fleet by the attack on Pearl Harbor. And this, as I said earlier, was because Enterprise returned to port late on December 7, 36 hours later than originally scheduled due to weather, after their covert delivery um, of bombers to Wake Island. And they tied up at a temporary berth, and they restocked and went, went back out over and over and over again, a couple of sort of uh, bandaged-up destroyers and Enterprise and a few escort ships, and they prevailed every single time against the Japanese Navy in some of the most lopsided naval clashes in American naval history. And to this day, they are still the most decorated carrier in American naval history. 
There was a fantastic well, scene in your book when Bill, uh, your dad, was able to go to the Enterprise and happened to be there mm-hmm. when the Enterprise received the presidential citation. Yes. When yes. That was a real moving and well-written piece. There's a lot of moving and well-written pieces in your book. That's very, very kind of you. Well, Benny's command post was called Sky Control, and it was the highest point on the ship. It was a this partially enclosed platform uh, on the tripod mast, 100 feet above the waterline. And lucky for me, he penned eyewitness accounts of every engagement, including his account of that scene uh, where they received the presidential unit citation. And he penned scenes about their role in the Doolittle Raid and at Guadalcanal and Midway and the nail-biting sea air clash at Santa Cruz and, and many, many more. So I not only had his uh, personal accounts. I also had the accounts of, of other authors that had interviewed Benny when he came back from the Pacific in 44, and he worked uh, at the Pentagon just at the time that my father went to join the amphibians who were doing the island sweep across the Pacific. You know, all the, all the uh, you know, I think he got there right after Kwajalein and was there for Saipan, Iwo Jima, um, Okinawa and so forth, and and he also um, wrote accounts of these experiences. So I had the first-person accounts from both of them, and I also had the accounts of people that had interviewed them after that. And then, of course, the accounts of people that worked side-by-side with each of the, you know, that were quartered, shall we say, uh, in these various venues with each of the three brothers. So it was just layering on additional perspectives, um, you know, who who's the quote the quote um if history were told in the form of stories it would never be forgotten and this to me was 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 the you know the overarching story of the pacific war but then the up close and personal stories of the men that were in these now you know everyone these are household names Iwo Jima Guadalcanal Okinawa um Saipan all of it and you had the up-close-and-personal stories of, of these men that were there. And uh, those details, to me, you know, were endlessly fascinating, and the, and the different perspectives. Oh, I, I agree with you very much. It, it, also, your, your attention to detail was what really made this book fascinating. The really great authors were really famous because they would go the extra yard to give you that detail. You've done so with this book. I recall one moment in the White House where your father's working in the war room with Roosevelt, and you even brought up the detail of the clanking radiator and the and the yes. and the black and the black painted window. Yes, and uh, it really yes, put me it put quarters. me in that room at that time as as Roosevelt That's wheeled awesome. himself in and everything was set at a level where he could see it and work with it. That was right. it was inspiring, and and that helps kind of it helps to segue to your dad. How did your dad end up in the Navy, and uh, what was his role in the White House? Well, that's an interesting question, because my father, you know, wanted the same coveted course that Benny took to go to sea and get a commission upon his graduation. But when he went in, you know, he was on the verge of graduating, and he went in to get an eye examination, which was required both at the entrance to the Naval Academy and the exit from the Naval Academy, and he failed that eye exam uh, for nearsightedness. And of course, my father graduated from the Naval Academy in 1933, and they were in the teeth of the recession at that point, and it was peacetime. And any excuse would do to not commission someone. And he, he was, you know, said, you can't go active with those eyes. And 
He was devastated, but he moved to Washington, immediately applied to law school. And, um, well, first thing he did was go to the, to, the, to the White House and ask to speak to the president, who had given the commencement speech, the 19, class of 1933 commencement speech at the Naval Academy at Annapolis. And he said, and Roosevelt said in that speech, uh, well, for those of you who don't, you know, who aren't uh, uh, getting commissions, you know, you always have a friend in the White House. Of course, Roosevelt had been the assistant secretary of the Navy at one time. And so my father went to the stacks of the Times-Herald and got the speech and went to the White House and said, I'm here. I didn't get a commissioning um, because of my eyesight. You know, what have you got? <laughs> and so he... he uh, Can I speak I, I with uh, Mr. Roosevelt? <laughs> yes, yes, he did. And so um, the press secretary came out and said, well, you know, that was kind of rhetorical. And my father said, well, it may have been rhetorical, but I need a job. And so he got a job inspecting lead castings, which was, uh, I think, one of the more boring jobs in his career down at the Navy Yard and until he was accepted at law school and then went to law school and became a patent lawyer. And sometime in 1940, he stayed very closely connected to his colleagues at the Naval, Naval Academy. He was involved in the Alumni Association and so forth. And through these various associations, he, came, he, he met the chief of Naval Intelligence who said, I can get you a waiver come, where there's going to be a war, come down to Naval Intelligence, and we'll set you up. And so he got that waiver, and he went into the reserves in Naval Intelligence. He was well-liked. He was good at his job and so forth. He had a, a significant work ethic. And when Churchill visited in December 1941 after Pearl Harbor to secure his Europe First policy, uh, he brought a traveling maps and set them up in the room across from the room where he was staying at the White House. And Roosevelt and Churchill had a little bit of a competition going, and Roosevelt turned to one of his aides and said, set me up a room like Churchill. And so they picked a room in the basement of the White House that had been a coat room at various times. It had been a room for, it had, it had a billiard table in there at one time, and they emptied it out, and they set up the map room in that room. And my father was detailed over from Naval Intelligence to run the room. And then after, I would say, a period of six months or so, um, his position was made permanent, and it was run on a uh, 24-hour-a-day basis, locked and guarded at all times. They had half a dozen Navy watch officers, half a dozen Army watch officers, and my father sort of oversaw the operation, and they would continuously update Allied and Axis troop and ship movements across the globe on these National Geographic charts, which basically covered the walls of the entire room. And the State Department didn't know about it, and neither did Harry S. Truman. So here we are, 1942. Yes. Bill, your dad is, is working with Roosevelt. He's an intelligence. He knows now that Barton is missing, and it's, it's, yes. it's, it's absolutely just eating him up, uh, along with the family and uh, Bill's mom. Benny, I think, is also aware that Barton can't be found. How did your dad begin the process of trying to dig up what did happen to Barton? How difficult was it? And was that what, was that what finally prompted him to leave the White House and try to get into the action on its, on its way to Saipan? Uh, yes. The, the answer to the second question is a definite yes. He, first of all, he felt partly responsible for Barton being in harm's way in the first place, despite his best efforts, because he had facilitated this commission in the Supply Corps, not knowing or not 
anticipating, uh, you know, he would be sent to the Philippines. But, you know, Barton was not opposed to it. It was always the influence of the mother, you know, that fitting distance from Japan and so forth. So here he was in the White House, certainly a plum assignment by anybody's sense of it, but he wanted to get to see and he kept seeking uh, opportunities to get a waiver for his his nearsightedness. But of course, on, on a ship in, you know, in a war zone, uh, you know, you miss that periscope on the surface of the water, you could imperil an entire ship's company. He ultimately got that waiver. So he was going to go out and serve as a legal officer and a personnel officer uh, not as a combat officer, and he became the legal aide to Admiral Kelly Turner, who was the chief of the amphibious forces that did that island sweep, you know, uh, across the Pacific all the way to Japan's doorstep. And so Benny came back uh, to Washington right as Bill was leaving Washington to go to the Pacific and participate in all of those island campaigns. And he was getting closer and closer and closer to Barton. His search started by writing the ship's captain, by writing uh, the, the, I believe it was the 9th Naval District. And to find out what happened, his ship arrived in Australia in January 1942 without Barton aboard. The ship's captain wrote back and said, we were ordered out. He did not return to the ship. Of course, we knew at this point that he didn't return to the ship because he had been struck down. Uh, in the aerial attack. He also said, this captain's reply, Captain Newsom said, he might have taken to the hills because a lot of Allied forces, instead of being captured, elected to take to the hills and fight with the Filipino guerrillas. But this was unknown, of course. He was finally located at a prison camp on Luzon in north of Manila in May 1942. Briefly located. And then, uh, of course, they're moving these prisoners around constantly. Some were being shipped to Japan. Some were being moved to other prison camps. Um, Barton was moved to a camp in the southern Philippines on Mindanao, and that's when they kind of lost him again and then relocated him again. I mean, it was, you know, we didn't have, until the guerrillas were really up and running and had good communications with our outpost in Australia, all information was anecdotal. We didn't really have any... It was a curtain of silence, what was happening in the Philippines until our guerrillas, working with the Filipino guerrillas, sort of got a resistance movement going, got communications lines set up deep in the jungles, and and he was located again, but at the end of the war, he was unaccounted for. And until I discovered what happened... And the authorities gave the family an explanation of what happened, you know, that... He died of disease, and the Japanese were moving, you know, these prisoners around at sea. And my grandmother wrote, continued to write and say, I, I know, I, once the veil of censorship had been lifted after the war, I know what happened to these men. He did not die of disease. And I eventually found out what happened, and I was stunned. I actually, it was, I, I had several Japanese documents translated. When I had this particular document translated that revealed the truth, I commissioned a second translation of the same document to be sure it was correct. It was so stunning and so completely different from what the government told uh, the family at the time. The the (laughs) Japanese, am I correct in saying the Japanese did not sign uh, any kind of an agreement in terms of um, how prisoners would be treated? They refused to sign it. And for the sake of our our listeners, I'm hoping you can tell us what uh, treatment was uh, that Barton suffered through and the men with him 
and also the men who had to endure the death march on Bataan? Well, the uh, Japan was not a signatory to the Geneva Convention of 1929 because uh, it had a an article in it that condoned the notification of relatives upon a soldier or sailor's uh, surrender. And surrender in, in, in Japanese culture at that time, under the Bushido Code, was the most dishonorable of acts. It brought shame on the family, on the individual, on the country. And so they didn't uh, abide by any of the rules of the Geneva Convention. And I, I tell you honestly, I was not prepared for the profusion of stories of beheadings, of burying people alive, of burning uh, burning prisoners to death. They had nothing but contempt for, for prisoners of war who had surrendered because this was it was a cultural chasm between these two countries and these two cultures. They were treated very badly in these prison camps. They, there was dysentery. There, there was death by all kinds of dece- diseases as well as overworking. They slowly starved these men to death. I mean, here's a startling statistic. 41% of American prisoners of the Japanese in that war died in captivity, compared to 2% of American prisoners in the hands of the Germans. Mm-hmm. 2% of Americans captured by the Germans. That disparity was due to this cultural chasm when it comes to surrender. These deaths were almost without exception gruesome and at the hands of their captors. I think there was a bigger cultural divide than just the Bushido Code uh, at that time. I think the emperor had led the Japanese to believe that they, as a culture, were invincible and that anybody else in their hands, be it the Chinese or be it uh, any of the islands that they overran or Americans or British, were less than human and that they were their culture had led them correct. at that time to believe that since they were less than human, they could be treated worse than you would treat a dog. Well, and also uh, the emperor was a virtual deity to the citizens of Japan, and these men were happy to die uh, for the glory of their emperor. And they were very, very well-trained and brave soldiers as a result of this. And they were better trained, I have to say. They'd been fighting for years in China and other uh, areas in, in the, the Asian Pacific theater. And they were tough. They not only regarded the enemy as dogs, as you say, but they were also very, very tough, hardened well-trained soldiers. I think that what you what you read in these various Japanese-American uh, dialogues that have popped up in various online fora, because there's a lot of anger even in future generations, you know, about the lack of an apology, the lack of reparations for slave labor, and so on and so forth, that there's an acknowledgement that there was such a cultural chasm for all the reasons we both um, mentioned you know, I think the retrospective, it's softening a little bit. It's better than it was when I started this this uh, research project, even 10 short years ago. I think there's uh, a gradual improvement in understanding. And Abe, I believe, also uh, met with a group of veterans and apologized. Now, we they never got an apology sort of back in the day. So I'm not saying it's perfect. They don't teach it in their schools. They don't teach what, you know, this sort of thing in their schools. I mean, say what you will about the Germans and Angela Merkel, they teach it. They teach the Holocaust in their school. Right. Never again is their, is their you know, creed. 
And uh, but the Japanese don't do that. They still say, "Well, we were victims." You know, we were victims. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. That's uh, it is amazing. But they've never quite accepted that the truth of of what that generation did. Uh, I know my father right. was in World War II, and he never forgave the Japanese. And I think he was typical of millions and millions of American men yeah. who survived that war and who survived that generation. That there was absolutely no forgiveness for the atrocities that they committed. Absolutely. Where's your father? My father Where was was, was Navy. Uh, he, he had uh, real eyesight problems. He Somehow he did manage to get up uh, in a PBY, so they had him flying coastal defense in a PBY. Uh, oh, he had really? also gotten a job with GE as, a, as an engineer, and they called him into Washington at one point during the war and said, listen, we've got a real problem here. We've got uh, instrument panels. Our pilots have been complaining about uh, blindness when they look up from the instrument panel, and I d- honestly don't remember if it was red or blue at that time. And they had him, they set up a booth for him and gave him all the assistance he needed. And he actually did studies on the effect of the different uh, instrument panel lights on the retina and realized that there was a a momentary blindness being caused as they looked back up uh, from this instrument panel. And he changed, he recommended that the color be changed from what it was to, and again, I wish I had it right, it was changed from blue to red or red to blue. And he would take, he would go that down to Patuxent and fly with uh, marine pilots uh, and test this new orientation. And, and this guy said, yeah, he, they said, put him in as soon as you can. So that was uh, every, every, that new, every new plane that came out after that, they, they changed the color of that instrument panel. So he was able to help out in that way. What a uh, great story. That is amazing. He now ended, you up, need to he write ended that up with now. GE with GE Large Lamp Division <laughs> and worked for General Electric. Oh, that for is awesome. Years. What a story. I have never heard that. That is a very cool story. The the sidetrack I wanted to get on with you, since uh, your yes. dad was the head of O and I for a while, uh, we have done a, a lot of research on Amelia Earhart. And uh, I'm I'm um, of the I'm of the group that believes she was captured by the Japanese. And, of course, there's people who believe that she just missed uh, Howland and crashed and sunk, and that was it. Now, your right. dad your dad had access to um, a lot of documents, and I'm just wondering if the word ever came down to the family, what side he was on regarding that issue, if it ever I came up. I would love to know the answer to that question. I watched that, I believe it was a PBS or a History Channel documentary on um, uh, this, you know, based on this, theory and recent interviews and photographs that she was indeed captured by the Japanese and she was kept, I think it was Okinawa possibly. She was kept on Saipan but, uh, in, a, in a jail called the so Garapan Jail. Uh, I don't ever, I'm not saying he didn't talk about it, but I don't remember that he talked about it. But of course, the Navy was asked to do a search at that time. What year was it again? It was 1937. Was late 30s? Yeah. 37, yes. And... Um, uh, they didn't find her, but I, I, from what I've read about that search, there was some miscommunication about where she was last seen. And of course, you know, 70 million square miles of ocean is the Pacific theater. And the short answer is, I don't know the answer to your okay. question. And I don't remember that he talked about it, but you have, um, you, I am also a fellow enthusiast when it comes to reading up on these various theories. And, um, you know, the, that history.com documentary said that, um, 
you know, that they had her Electra in tow and, yep. you know, yeah, the, yeah the and picture, so forth. The yeah. picture shows a large silver plane on a, on a barge on the back of the Koshu Maru, which was a seaplane tender. Right. Questions arise as to whether or not that was her sitting with her back to the camera uh, right. on the edge of the dock. And where was Fred at that time? Well, it says that Fred is standing maybe right. the 20, yard, 20 yards yeah, closer yeah. to the Fred Noonan. 20 yards closer to the yeah, camera, yeah. and that the picture was probably taken by intelligence. And if not, if not, why was it released from the uh, why was it released from the uh, naval intelligence files? <laughs> why was it even in the naval intelligence files to begin with? Number one, um, and then why was it released? Right, what and I, I thought it was interesting. Later, they asked Admiral Nimitz, if I recall correctly, yep. and he said, "Yes, I believe she was held." You say Saipan? I think it was Saipan. And, you know, but there was nothing we could do because Saipan was in the hands of the enemy at that point and exactly. so on and so forth. Yeah, so, that's what Fred Gurner, that's what um, the author Fred Gurner said, that he had talked to Nimitz, and Nimitz said, uh, yep, I can tell you, we knew they had. Yeah, that- the Titanic. They thought they'd never find the Indianapolis and a bunch of others. Uh, someday they're going to figure this out. Well, you know, our we weren't quite at war yet, but we, we definitely were in not, in not in a good place with Japan, even in 1937, you know, we... Yeah. You know, we were issuing embar- we were trade embargoes and this and that and the other and freezing assets, and, and it didn't improve our ability to sort of help her. And, of course, she was one woman, and, you know, I think that was the view then anyway. Uh-huh. Yes, actually, I did speak down in Virginia Beach um, a few months ago. Uh, let's see, when was I think maybe February. I spoke to the Virginia Beach Forum about the book. Yeah, and okay. did a signing afterward. Yeah, those people were wonderful. Oh, good. Uh, and I met a lot of Navy people. And it, initially, they said, "Well, you know, maybe we should do this on the USS Wisconsin because I think they have events on that hangar deck." Hmm. Um, you're certainly in a Navy-rich town. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no also end, the there. home of the MacArthur Memorial Archives. <laughs> your book was your book was very informative. On a, on a number of themes, and one of those themes was the constant bickering as you get down to different levels of who was running the war and who was making the decisions. And that bickering also right. came down to Army versus Navy in a, in a lot of situations. Uh, one, of the, one, right. one of the things I wanted to—you did a good job outlining MacArthur, and MacArthur—I I noticed that there's no active ships named the USS MacArthur. Maybe you could help— <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you can explain to our listeners why that might be. Well, MacArthur always hated the Navy. Uh, so, okay, so let's begin at the beginning. <laughs> MacArthur was uh, came out of retirement uh, and uh, ostensibly to uh, go to the Philippines and help um, build up the Filipino forces, teach them how to fight, teach them modern gunnery, and so on and so forth. And he really didn't do a very good job at that. And when the Philippines was attacked, you know, they had all antiquated equipment. They were not well trained. They really didn't have uh, much in the way of sort of drills and military exercises the way, you know, we know them, uh, the training to take place in this country, for example. He fled to Corregidor. There was an old war plan. Uh, that said in the unlikely uh, event of an attack by forces, uh, Army will mostly go to Bataan, and then mostly Navy to Corregidor, although the commanding officer would also go to Corregidor. He went to Corregidor, and Roosevelt, who did not like MacArthur, also understood, and he was sending out press releases every day about 
the bravery of his forces and if only the Navy would send more ships and reinforcements and so on and so forth. This was the same MacArthur whose planes were caught on the ground wingtip to wingtip and destroyed by the Japanese. And, of course, we were ill-prepared. It's, it's a household fact that we were ill-prepared for the outbreak of war. We, we're, we did not have uh, much in the way of trained forces. We didn't have much in the way of modern equipment. The Japanese was much better uh, armed and equipped and trained, Japanese Army and Navy. And uh, But Roosevelt understood that we could not have, that if the Philippines did fall, it would be terrible for morale if MacArthur were to get captured. And so he ordered MacArthur to Australia to hold that line because if the, to hold the communications lines to Australia and supply lines because if we lost Australia, which was the only allied bastion left in the Asian theater, the Pacific theater, then um, we almost certainly would have lost that side of the war. It seems, it so seems as if he went, were more worried about securing his legacy uh, than he was about some of the details that passed him by. For instance, uh, he didn't when they when he ordered the men to uh, to move to the Bataan Peninsula uh, after the Japanese attack. He left all the food and medical supplies behind. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. He did, and so they were on half rations right from the start, and they held even at that for four months. So that was that's correct, and that that was one of his many errors. Then he got to Australia and. He, um, and of course, war was, you know, being declared all over the globe at that point, and he wanted to be the head of, the basically the commanding officer of the whole Pacific War. Well, Admiral Nimitz and others in Washington w were not going to let an army officer command a 70 million square mile war theater comprised of water, but nor were they going to let Admiral Nimitz um, have seniority over General MacArthur, because he had been a one-time Army Chief of Staff, and he was senior in rank, as these sort of Byzantine rankings go, even though he was a general and Nimitz was an admiral, he was senior because he'd held this position. So Roosevelt continued to broker this, saying he sort of drew lat latitudes and longitudes and said, okay, MacArthur's going to be in charge of this side of the Pacific Theater, and Nimitz uh, at all are, are, is going to be in charge of this side of the Pacific Theater. And, um, and then as these forces converge, the island sweep gets closer to Japan. MacArthur takes care of New Guinea and other areas um, on that side of the Pacific. Then they'll join forces. But he never said who would lead that. It was a divided command, and it cost a lot of lives. Mm. And um, MacArthur was very angry about this. He said he called it the Navy Cabal. He said they don't know how to fight, they don't know how to win a war. When there was an island attack, say uh, Tarawa or Saipan, all of them were bloody. He would say that Navy just doesn't know how to fight, and he basically blamed the Navy, where he saw very little combat himself. And so there was very, very bad blood between the Army and the Navy in that regard, but it was partly because there was no clear direction from the commander-in-chief, if you will, about who was in charge. And until the very end, uh, until summer of 1945, when he said, okay, MacArthur is going to lead, well, he died in April of 45, but, but in, in 1945, let's just say, MacArthur is going to lead our forces in the final assault on homeland Japan. 
and which of course didn't happen um, because of the, because the bomb was dropped and probably saved millions of lives, more Japanese lives, in fact, than American lives, but plenty of both. And but MacArthur was, as you say, very concerned with his legacy, and he wrote books and he gave speeches and. Um, even when Truman fired him for disobeying orders regarding Korea, they gave him a ticker tape parade in New York City. I mean, he came home a hero, and that was a legacy he genuinely sought to enhance and protect and so forth. And I went down to the MacArthur Memorial Archives and spent days going through documents and letters. And, you know, a lot of those prisoners of war could have been saved, especially the ones that were, that were being held in the Southern Islands had MacArthur and or his psychophantic staff um, allowed it to happen sooner because they, in many of these camps, not the Luzon camps, but the camps on Mindanao were lightly guarded. There there were uh, thousands of uh, guerrillas that knew the terrain, and it, 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 it could have happened. And there were many, many testimonials that they still had at the MacArthur Library uh, to prove that point. But his primary concern was a blazing reputation restoring retaking of the philippines and he did not want those guerrillas taking care of prisoners of war he wanted them preparing for his you know uh, vaunted return there were a lot of so many fascinating parts of your story one was the uss enterprise who became a good friend with bull halsey uh, because they were both uh, from new jersey and and some yes. of the, some of the quotes Benny, from yes. some of the quotes from Halsey Halsey was quite a guy. Uh, a couple yes, of a couple was. that I made notes of. One he said he was going to take Hirohito's white horse and ride it through Tokyo uh, as soon as they yes. ended this war. And the second quote was that the Jap language would only be spoken in hell after this war was over. <laughs> right, and, right. And and we'd be happy to split the Pacific. They can take the bottom half, and we'll take the top half. <laughs> there was no backup <laughs> in Bull Halsey. <laughs> no, very colorful, very colorful figure, for sure. And then there was, there was Benny's account of, uh, they were on a secret mission. They had a carrier task force, and he looks out uh, from his position as, as in gunnery, from the deck of the Enterprise, and he sees he sees the USS Hornet uh, beside them, and on top of the Hornet are sitting B-25s, and I can imagine yes. the, these huge B-25s sitting on the deck of the Hornet, and these guys on the Enterprise saying, oh my God, you know, <laughs> and at that point... Yes, that was the dude a little raid. Yeah, right? and at that point, I guess it was Halsey came over to loudspeaker and said, men, we're going to bomb Tokyo. And, it, and when you described in your book the feeling of pride uh, that these guys had, this was the low point of the war. Everybody, all the Allies had been taking it on the chin. Really, nobody could have told you then if we're going to win it or lose it. Uh, right. And, and, and the feeling well, those guys had that we finally were going to get them back must have yeah, just been yeah. incredible. Yes. I mean, I worked on this story for many years, and when I reread, those sections about the enterprise and what they were up against and the pride that they felt and the sheer gutsiness and bravery and scrappiness. I, I still get goosebumps, <clears throat> you know, and that's a That was a, that was a great scene. Yes. You have, you have a lot of great scenes in the book. I'm going to let you wrap it up, but still provide the teaser here. I know we can't say what happened to the three brothers, but uh, I'm going to let you finish out the story to the degree that you want to finish it out. 
and then then you can give all right. your contact information how people can get in touch with you and, and how they can get the book. All right, that's a great idea. Um, well, I have um, an author page on Facebook. It's Sally Mott Freeman Dash author, and um, I, I can get direct messages and so forth there. Um, but, I, you know, I, I get a lot of letters. Um, I get a lot of letters and emails, which is wonderful because it's connected me with lots of people who have other tangential connections to this story. Uh, but one of the most interesting ones that I received was from a uh, DNA forensic analyst who works on behalf of the military to identify remains from foreign wars. And it was a very emotional note. She works out of Dover Air Force Base, and she, you know, admitted early in the note, she said, it's taken me some time to, you know, compose myself to write this. I, I, um, I read your, I had a different perspective on your book, probably from most of your readers. And then she told me what she did and then said that they made great progress in identifying remains and also re-identifying remains that had been misidentified and encouraged um, me. She said she thanked me for the book and said this is going to help our, our efforts, you know, to bring closure to, to families that not only didn't know what happened to their loved one who did not return, they, they didn't know, you know, where they went down and so forth. And that lack of closure is very corrosive on family. And I experienced that as a child uh, of, of the conflict, if you will. And um, the, this painful edict, unaccounted for, it, you know, it recedes in time, but for lack of res- resolution, its corrosive effects on family don't. So when I received this letter from this woman, I'll just add a little bit of a quote here. I am a forensic analyst for the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory, where we identify the missing from past foreign conflicts. Right from the start, I was rooting for your family to find your missing uncle, as I have listened to multiple family stories of loss and heartbreak, as well as of closure and happiness. The Department of POW MIA Accounting Agency holds monthly meetings for missing families to submit their DNA as references. We cannot find their relatives if we do not have these references. Currently, we have housed over 2,500 remains of missing individuals from Europe, Southeast Asia, and the many Philippine islands and receive new samples weekly, et cetera. And so I, I actually, I don't boost posts, if you will, but I took excerpts of this letter because she was asking me, if you know of anybody that has this, is in this situation, please urge them to contact me and I will send them a DNA sample kit because we may be able to find those people. So I took this post. I, I didn't say who, what her name was. I sort of protected her privacy. And the first and only time I have boosted a post was this. And I boosted it to the Philippines. And I boosted it to China and Australia and um, a few other uh, islands in the South Pacific. It's amazing what you can do if you understand technology, which is, you know, I'm getting there slowly. And 25,000 people read that post. And there was a surge in, in requests for these, these kits. And I feel that if I help one family reach the closure that I was able to help my family reach in, in finding out what happened and writing this story, I will have done my job. That's a great story. And, and thank, thank you for you. doing that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, it just... You know, when I when I went out on book tour, I didn't. I mean, I've been you know sort of 
cloistered in an office reading this or, or you know, writing this story or out researching. And this was a very different experience um, going face-to-face with people uh, who, who had missing family members, and they wanted me to help them help themselves to get to this place. And I, that was a mission I didn't anticipate but have derived great satisfaction from. Well, your, your book, like I said, is a must-read I had trouble putting it down. In fact, <laughs> in fact, I'll admit I pretty much went straight through with this. Uh, I just found it fascinating. Uh, your oh, style of writing wonderful. is great. Thank you so much. You've really told the story of the sacrifice that families make in war, and it's something I think that's often overlooked. But you certainly, you certainly have a story here uh, that I would not be surprised at all to see become a movie. Uh, I hope for your sake that it does, and if it does, of course, I hope you get all the rights as uh, overseeing detail. Uh, Wouldn't that be great? Well, I'm working on a treatment right now, um, uh, which which they've asked for. My agent has asked me for it, so she can sort of circulate or circulate it around, I guess, L.A. And I'm on, of course, I'm, I'm city hopping now uh, with the book. I'm working on that, so um, that's a work in progress because mm. she did hold back the uh, the um, the film rights my agent did she said this is she sees it as a mini series actually uh, but I've got my work cut out for me to get that to get that finished and out to them the Jersey Brothers is available at Amazon and anywhere you can get great books is that correct yes sir that's correct <laughs> well I thank you so much thank you so much for your time for this interview it's thank been you. nice meeting you I just remembered Go I ahead. just remembered by the way that the the quote um, it was Rudyard Kipling that said, if history were told in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. So that was sort of my motto going, going through this, that when we were talking earlier about the details. So I guess you're going to be doing a lot of cutting and pasting to put this together. But, but yeah, right. you're uh, right. You can take out all the ers and ums, I hope. <laughs> you're, you did great on your end. But yes, I'll be removing a lot of my ers and ums and a lot of our in-between segments. So grateful to you. This has been a lot of fun. Same Sorry here. about the... I, I absolutely enjoyed it. It's been great. Uh, if you're ever in the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area, you've got my email, so let me know you're coming. Yes, and, sir. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll get I some more great will. conversations going. Wonderful. I'd love to tour the USS Wisconsin. Maybe we can do that together. You. That's a deal. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, listen, thank you again, and take care. Let me know when your show goes up. Thank you, and I'll send you an MP3 of the finished piece before it comes up. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Sally. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What a fun interview with a great author. And I hope I get that chance to introduce her to the USS Wisconsin, right here in Norfolk, built in 1944. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We have links to Sally's website and to her book at Amazon in the show notes. 1001 Heroes has started a Patreon account where you can help to support our show. And there are a few different options for monthly support there. We just started it at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And we're asking you to join us there so we can get some names on the list. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. We have a link in the show notes for you. And we invite you to check out our newest show, Radio Days. You can start with the episode, Bob Hope, somewhere in the South Pacific. And then try out the other shows. It's a great mix of drama, detective, and comedy shows from the golden age of radio and the quality is great. That's it for now. We've changed the number of show links, so take a minute and look at the show notes to get some new links to where you can find us. Thanks. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.